ask you to go to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have one, you can grab one of the ones hopefully sitting in the pew before you. Or you're, of course, just free to listen. As I said at the beginning of service, we are now going to have a four-part series on Advent. And Advent means coming. We look to the coming of Jesus, and it's at this time of year that we talk about the coming of Jesus in Christmas. And we're going to have two messages on Christmas. Today's the first message that we'll have on Christmas, and next week we'll have a Christmas message as well. And then at the, for the start of the new year, we'll have two messages on the second coming of Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is coming again, returning? How we ought to live in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. That would be messages three and four of this brief series. Today we are looking at, quite honestly, one of the most profound and most incredible portions of Scripture. Nobody else teaches anything like this. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other teaching of, of human beings could ever have even conceived of anything quite like this. Only Christianity, it's only in the Bible that teaches something like this. And so we are getting at something of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith in this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the Word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for today's message and then we'll begin. Lord, I often feel like a babbling fool speaking of things that are so great. And, and hard to convey in words. The truth of your scriptures to make to be made alive in us. But today, especially, I pray that your your grace would be upon my lips so that your grace would be in our people. To speak of things that are that are almost unfathomable, so great for the human mind to barely be able to grasp. And so help me, Lord, so that your people would know you and be in awe of you and love you. Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today I'm not going to give you any clever stories. You know, no special analogies, illustration. I'm just going to go through this passage. It's a huge and profound passage. It, what it teaches is so, so vast and so large. It's, it's, uh, it's almost the human mind can't quite wrap its mind around it. And I want to talk about this because I think this cuts to the very meaning of Christmas. What is Christmas? 
Why is it so very important? And, you know, there's all these passages, there's only so many passages in the Bible where that's in, about Christmas, but I actually think this is the most profound and penetrating text that teaches us about Christmas. And so, let me try to explicate this text, and I hope I do so faithfully. Now, let's start. The way I would like to start is I would like to get, get, give your attention to a word that's repeated in this text, and that word is form. So let's go to verse, the latter part of verse 5. It says, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, though who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking what? The form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human, what is it? Again, in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, let me tell you a little something about this particular passage. This passage has fired the imaginations of theologians and Bible readers throughout history. People have recognized that this is a, one of the most powerful passages. And some argue about whether Paul actually composed this or Paul knew this, people recognize this probably goes right back to the apostles, right back to the, the, the very earliest disciples. Almost no scholar thinks that this doesn't, is, doesn't really go all the way back, probably right back to the very earliest days when Jesus was resurrected. And some people think that maybe Paul didn't write to make this up, that people sang this in the church because this goes to the core meaning of what Christians believe. But in order to get at this, I think... I, want, I would like to clear up what I think is a misunderstanding. Because in the English word form, the word, when we use the word form, what we mean is some kind of a shape of something, but it doesn't mean of the absolute essence of it. So when I, the, the, I mean, I use a very silly analogy today. If, let's say Noah here, you know, our brother Noah is sitting up here. If Noah were to come to church wearing a rabbit outfit, <laughs> you know, it's like it's Halloween or something, and he'd be wearing a rabbit outfit, we could say that he is in the form of a bunny. And I'm using this very silly. He's in the form of a bunny, but would he be a bunny? <laughs> no. Like, like we could see he's still a, a man. He's still a human being. He is in the shape. We would say he's in the form of a bunny, but he isn't of the essence of being a rabbit, right? That is the way we would use the word form in modern day English. That is not the way the, 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 this passage is using the word form. We're using the word form in this text, but it's actually very misleading. I think it's actually kind of a, it's misleading because that's not the way we use it. In the word, in Greek, the word form, morphos, actually has an entirely different meaning. Because in Greek philosophy, and this goes all the way back to Plato, it's, it's just deep in Greek meaning. That word form means of the essence, of the absolute deepest reality apart from which this isn't it. I mean, like, I didn't even know. I mean, the, the Greek philosophical mind is strange. It's like, what is of the essence of being a chair? Does it mean it has four legs? Because <laughs> a stool doesn't have four legs, right? What is of the essence? But you kind of know what a chair is when you see a chair. It's like, it could be a stool or it can have like, four legs. It can even have like three legs or something. But there, there's, you kind of know what is of the essence, the absolute thing of what a chair is. And the Greek mind, when they use the word form, the form of a chair, they're saying it's the absolute essence. Now let me reread this passage with what this is saying. And this is very suggestive language in Greek to use that word, to pick that word out. 
And then let me try to translate this thing because I think in English it's, it's misleading. Let's, let me read it again. Christ Jesus, though He was in the essence of God, though He was the essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the essence taking the very essence, the deepest, most profound, core essence of being a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and, and being found in human essence. In human essence, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is this passage teaching? This passage is teaching something that cuts right to the core of Christian doctrine. The theologians have said it in multiple different ways. Jesus Christ is fully God. There's this mystery that everybody knows that Christians believe, this mystery of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. That there's one God, but there's three persons. And those three persons, all three of them, each of them are all equally fully of the essence God. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, who is the, the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is of the essence of God. There's, when Christians encounter people who say that Jesus is a lesser God than the Father, or like say, let's say the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or say that the Unitarians believe, or say uh, even Mormons in some sense have a sense that Jesus is, a, is God, a divine, but he's of a, of a different kind of divinity than of the Father. Christians were immediately reject that because we would cite a passage such as this. But this passage, I mean, it can't be more direct. What we're saying is, he who is God. You can't be any less God than God. This is God. He's of the essence of God. Came down and then he became of the essence of man. He became the essence of human, the human form, human essence. And so what do you have in Jesus is something that the human mind can't even really quite grasp. He was absolutely omniscient and omnipotent. So if you're God, He is almighty, omnipotent. He is omniscient. He's eternal. He is omnipresent. Now, a few years, a couple years ago, when I first came to this church, I gave a sermon up this, and I tried to give an illustration, but like, I took a rubber ball. Imagine I'm holding a ball, right? I took a rubber ball. God is omnipresent. Let me just try to give you a little idea of what omnipresent is like. If the ball represents everything that is created, the whole entirety of the universe and all of history, the beginning and the end, imagine the ball represents that. So here's the beginning. The ball is at the beginning. And here's the end. And we're kind of somewhere in the middle, somewhere like in the middle of time and somewhere in the middle of the universe. To God... God holds all of creation, all of time, the beginning and the end, one edge of the universe to the other, if there even is such a thing. I don't even know, you know like physicists, physicists and astronomers debate that, if there is such an end, right? But to God, everything is like this. And God can say, okay, I'm here at the beginning. And he is present at the beginning. And then he can come over here to the other side of the ball and say, I'm here at the end of the ball. And then he's like, and, and everywhere in between. He's omnipresent. This is how great and large and how, how incomprehensible our God is. And this is the picture of God that the Bible presents. 
And this is what it means to, to be of the essence of God. If you're going to be God, you can't be any lesser than this. The, the Greek notion of what it means to be God is like Zeus, and like Zeus doesn't know the absolute future, and he is like, he is, he is, uh, he's bopping along in history, and he is tied to the fates, just like all the other gods. This is not a conception of God that the Bible recognizes. There's only one God, and this is a picture of God. Now, let me, before I go into move on to this, there's an agreement. It's not only Christians who believe that these are the attributes of God. Muslims also believe this. Okay? So do the Jews. The three great monotheistic religions of the world all accept that if you're going to have the essence of God, God has his absolute transcendence. He has his incredible sovereignty. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. That, you know, if I would give this illustration in front of a bunch of Muslims, God's like this. If the universe is like a ball, he is omnipresent every day. We just go, yep, sounds good. We're in agreement with you, Christian. Right? They would agree with that. They would agree with this first this, that that is what it means to be in the essence of God. And this passage says that Jesus being in the form of God, that he has all these attributes. Okay, but mm, the passage just goes on to say that he humbled himself and put himself in human form. He put himself in human form. That means everything that it means to be human. You have a body. That you have mortality. That you are not omniscient. You have like limits of knowledge. That you are not, uh, you, you are not omnipresent. I mean, we're only present here. I'm not here and in China at the same time. I'm not here and in the fifth century at the same time or at the beginning of time. I'm only just here and I'm only here exactly right now, 1038 Pacific Standard Time in Santa Clara, California. That's exactly the only place I can be present. That's exactly it. Jesus took all of the grandiosity and the grandeur of being God, and he also became truly one like us. How could that possibly be? Some people just say, like, that doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't, right? But this is, cuts right down to what Christians teach. And you know, the Jews say, no, we don't believe that. Right? That can't be true. Right? The Muslims, they not only reject that, they actually find it offensive. They actually think that so the notion that God could become like a man and have to sit on a toilet. Who knows if he had a toilet? There's probably an outhouse, right? Can you imagine this? God had to use an outhouse. Hmm? God spat up. God needed to have his diaper changed. God needed to learn things. God was in kindergarten at one point. I don't even know if they had kindergarten or called it that, right? Of course, they didn't call it kindergarten. It's a German word, kindergarten, right? But... The equivalent. What was the first century Palestinian equivalent? God underwent all these things. The Muslim actually thinks this out and just, just gets angry. They get angry and offended at this thing. And this notion that the Christians believe, they utterly reject this. Right? And you realize here in America, and America is a historically Christian country. We, we celebrate this, this thing called Christmas every year. Every year as we get near to Christmas, we are celebrating something that only the Christians really believe. And it is crazy. It is crazy what we believe. And it's right here, spelled out in Philippians chapter 2. And if you ask the Buddhists, they would hear that, like, okay, first they would say, well, God. They were like, well, we have a conception of God. He's just kind of in everything. We're like, that's not, 
we don't believe that God is just in everything. God is present everywhere. And, he's, and they were like, we can't even understand that. Like, we, can't, we don't agree with that view of God. We don't understand that. You go to the Muslims. They were like, we agree with your conception of God, but this thing that he's the second person and he came down and no way, no way, right? That's in Christmas. Do you realize that in our culture, lots of people around the world celebrate Christmas, but if you're really going to truly celebrate Christmas for what it is, only the Christians really believe it. Now let me just ask you, just a little, we'll just take a little step, just take a quick little step away from the Bible here. And if you guys listen to Christmas music, you know, this is that time of year. I'm, um, I love Pandora. <laughs> I mean, I don't even listen to radio anymore. I only listen to Pandora or I only listen to podcasts. So I don't even know how people make money off me anymore. Like, I, the whole business structure is going to uh, crash. But at this time of year, right around, right after Thanksgiving, I turn to my Oh Holy Night channel. Right? I told you it's my favorite Christmas song. I change my Oh Holy Night channel. And then all these Christmas songs come on. And some of them are the Jesus songs. <laughs> they're the really, they're the, to me, the real Christmas songs. And then some of them are like all the secular American Christmas songs. Kind of like, you know, uh, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. You know, in California, it's like, I'm dreaming of a very yellow and sunny Christmas. Right? Um, or I'm, you know, I'll be home for Christmas. And you know, like I listen to that song, I'm like, it's, it's a really nice song. Especially when it's sung by like, like Michael Bublé or like Bing Crosby or something like that. When these guys are like super duper smooth voices. But really what the song celebrates is like, I'm living on the East Coast and then I'm going to take a plane and I'm going to go be with my family on the West Coast and we'll be reunited and then we'll have like chestnuts and it'll be like cool, all right? And all that's great for Christmas but in my mind, if you take away all the Jesus songs, Christmas will just be like family reunion time and go spend money time. And really, it celebrates a fat guy who's a myth, who gives toys to poor children. But it, that myth of a fat guy who gives toys to all the children around the world is actually based on a truth of a real Christian guy named Nicholas, and he said, Christmas is really about the greatest gift given to us poor people, Jesus. And so there was a baby, the most important baby ever, and he became a poor baby, and let us give toys to, because we have received the greatest gift, let's give toys. That's actually what's the whole myth. It's weird that the truth of a guy named Nicholas, who believed in Jesus, who loved Jesus and took the message of Christmas and transformed it through an act of tremendous mercy has now kind of been morphed off into this wild, weird, secular mythology, and then we celebrate that. And I don't resent the mythology of Santa Claus, right? But if you took away the Jesus, and if you took away Nicholas and his belief in Jesus, this thing wouldn't be nearly so beautiful, right? And the songs are beautiful. Even the secular ones. I even like the secular ones, right? But it's beautiful because the fundamental story of what the Christians say is crazy. Right? And, I, and this first point I want, I want to get across to you is the technical terminology for this is incarnation. He who is almighty God and the essence of God put himself into the flesh. That's literally what incarnation means. Into the flesh. Into the bones of the essence of human nature. 
And on that day was born Jesus, this story. Okay, that's point number one. What is this passage teaching? Christmas, the meaning of Christmas and incarnation. Point number two. I want to bring your attention to verse number six. Christ Jesus, though He was in the essence of God, which I just explained to you, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I want to teach you something that the Bible teaches that is very, I think, kind of forgotten in many churches today. But that verse has deep theological meaning in it. And really what he's saying is, Jesus Christ is not like Adam. That's what he's saying. That passage is saying, Jesus Christ is better than Adam, is not like Adam. Now let me take us back to, to, to Genesis. What is this passage saying about the nature, about the way human beings operate, fallen human nature, sinful human nature, broken humanity? Adam commits sin, as everybody famously knows. Adam ate of a fruit that was forbidden. God said, you can eat any of this fruit that's in this garden, but this one, don't touch it. Right? You can't even touch it. And throughout a lot of history, people said, that's just so stupid. Like how, could, like, how could God decide to kill everybody, put us under death, send people to hell over such a, such a stupid thing as this? Adam broke a stupid rule, and now God is going to send everybody to hell? That's like crazy. And it's true. Theologians throughout history have admitted that this, that, that, that the command from God has a fundamentally arbitrary nature to it. It is arbitrary, right? If you look at the rule itself, it's arbitrary. But what God is presenting before Adam is not arbitrary at all. A very, very profound principle. Now, I believe God could have just done something like this. Here's a little splotch of land. You know, he could have like drawn a little like square. It said, okay, on this piece of grass, don't step in it. You can walk around everywhere. You can lie around, roll around in the grass and the dirt, whatever. But on this, don't step in it. That is forbidden to you, right? And if you go in there, you will have a certain experience of good and evil that's forbidden. It's wrong, right? And I think he could have done something like that. But he didn't. I mean, he picked the fruit. But here's the principle. The principle that God was placing was this. Human beings were intended to rule on this planet. They were intended to rule and represent something in creation. What the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, I mean, all this stuff I just told you about what Adam did, that all comes in Genesis chapter 2. But in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God made human beings in His image. That what the human being is supposed to be is supposed to be an image, a picture, a representation of what God is like. And one of the things we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be inventive, we're supposed to have powers. We're supposed to reign and have dominion. And what the human being is supposed to be is a king over creation under God. Theologians actually use a, a, a technical terminology. A technical term for this is human beings are all supposed to be vice regents. Because in, in ancient politics, you'd have like, one king would conquer another king who says, I'll let you still be the king, but you have to run the nation, since now the nation belongs to me, you have to run the nation under my authority. So under my will. 
I will be the king over a king. You get to be a king that's called vice-regency. Theologians took a look at this thing, what are human beings supposed to be, and have dominion over the earth. We are so vice-regents, king under God, who is the absolute king. And in being a king like him, we're supposed to have all his beauty and wisdom and his goodness and his righteousness and his creativeness. And people recognize this. I mean, what people are out there saying, uh, we need to stop medicine. We need to stop science. We're not supposed to actually have controls. We're just going to let weeds and everything just control. Who in, lives in a, in a house and just says, I'm not going to have any dominion over my house, you know? Like, I'm just going to let every bug live with me, every rat live with me. I'm going to let every weed and every kind of weird pollen grow in my backyard. We don't believe in that, right? No matter who you are, even no matter whatever kind of like environmentalist you are, everybody imposes order and dominion over your own house, you're over in your own backyard. And you know what you're doing? You're practicing exactly what God intended for you to do. We go out there and we seek science. We, we even want to, everybody thought it was glorious when man first stepped upon the moon. We want to just understand and truly have our place. But here's also the thing too. What did Adam do? God set before him a choice. For you to have every wisdom and every character and righteousness to properly rule, you'll rule under me. And I'm going to set you before you a choice. You want to know what's truly good? It'll flow out of me. You want to know what's truly wise? You'll do it in obedience to me. You will want to know how to have the deepest heart of how to be a king under me as a king. You'll obey and trust. You'll trust me. So then he said a little test. He said, will you be a king under me as king? We have wisdom as my wisdom. And when Adam grabbed that fruit, he would say, I want to find out what there means to be good apart from you. I want to find out good and evil and define it and get to find it apart from you. And anything about the choice of good and evil and wisdom and reigning in the garden and the world apart from God, you know what that is? That is what this passage is saying. It is grasping after equality with God. And to grasp after equality with God, I mean, that is a wickedness. That is to say, I will be God. I will replace. And so when Adam committed that sin, everything fell apart. Because now the world will not be... He was supposed to be the ruler under it and, and let all the creation be under the, its proper king. That guy failed. And now all of us are infected with the spirit of that Adam. You know what's at the essence of sin? At the essence of sin... And what, this is what it means to be a fallen human being, to be a broken human being, to be a failing human being. To be a broken and failing human being at the essence is this, is that God will not be God, we will not receive His wisdom, we will not receive His righteousness, and I will decide for it on my own. It is grasping after the equality with God. And perhaps in, in, in our society, we really, we, 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 we're, we're doing this. God is a kind of an irrelevant being. You can choose your religion But at the end of the day, it's human beings who want to try to decide for themselves what's good and right. And I actually have a name for this. I believe the real religion of America is the religion of I am my own Lord and I am my own master and I get to make the meaning of my own life. I have a name for it. I call it the religion of autonomos. Auto self, nomos rule. The self rules, I rule. You know what that is? 
That is to grasp after equality with God and replace Him in our life. But what is this passage saying? This passage is saying, someone else came along. He who is very God of very God, who is in the essence of God, came down to be in the image of God what human beings are intended to be. Let me let's put it this way. The front part of the Bible says this. God made human beings to be in His image. We're supposed to be like a little mirror or a glass or a picture of Him. The image of God tried to kill God and replace Him. That's what Adam did. So then, human beings became broken and failures. We'll never become what we're meant to be. So then, He who is very God came down and lowered Himself to be one with us. Right? He lowered Himself. He is equal with God, but He said, I don't need to be equal with God. I will take the demotion. I will lower myself and be made in the image of God. Isn't that crazy? He made Himself less. So that human beings could be restored to what they were. Now, let me, let me see if I can try to illustrate this point. Um, I had a conversation with my son. We're talking about, you know, every now and then, like, every now and then theology comes up in our house. And I don't bring it up. Sometimes usually it's, it's in my kid. They ask me a weird question. It's like, Appa! You know, like, they, they figure, so their dad is a pastor. The dad is, has some answers. And every now and then they'll ask me some, some strange question. It's usually Hudson asks the question. Occasionally Laura, right? But Hudson, asked, we were talking about this question. And... And I can't remember exactly how we got into this, but what I was trying to explain to him is that Jesus is fully man. And I said, imagine if you, like, created the ants, but the ants got all messed up. And you said, the way I'm going to fix it is I'm going to go be one. And he was like, oh, right? (laughs) He's like, I'm going to go be one. I'm going to really be an ant. Wouldn't that be crazy? That would be a crazy demotion from being a a man or a woman, and then to be an ant, that's something like, I was trying to get this across to Hudson, that's something like what God did for us. He was like, whoa. Actually, that's not even good enough. The difference between an ant and a human being is nowhere close to the difference between a man and God. It's probably, I mean, I should say, we're, it's like, more like you try to become a virus or you try to become a piece of dust. You try to be lint. I'm going to be lint. <laughs> the redeemed lit, okay? I mean, it's like, I don't even know how you describe it. Let me try giving you a little slightly different analogy. Imagine if, if uh, the CEO, right, of Microsoft, it's, not, it's no longer um, Bill Gates, it's uh, Steve Ballmer, right? If the CEO of Microsoft, the most powerful man of one of the richest, largest, most important companies on this planet, were to say, my company's all broken and messed up. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down and become an assembly line worker in, like, China, producing one of our smallest little products. And he would give himself the ultimate demotion, and he would do it willingly and gladly. That's what this is. He did not count equality with the CEO, something to be grasped. You know, and that's really what a lot, that's what's going on. 
What's what's going on in every corporate atmosphere is the vice president wants to become you know director who wants to become the COO who wants to become the CEO right all the lower people will want to go a little higher and higher and grasp after a higher form of power and control so if the passage if I can try to translate this into modern English if he did not, he is the CEO. He is of the essence of the CEO. He is equality with the CEO. He did not grasp with e- equality with the CEO, but instead lowered himself to the very bottom of the rung. So that the bottom of the rung, which is supposed to reflect the greatness of the CEO, right, could come out. That's what this pastor is saying. Jesus is another Adam. In Romans chapter 5, there's this whole passage. It says, the first Adam did this, but another came along. Where the first Adam failed, another Adam did not fail. You know what this passage is saying? Jesus is like a new humanity. He's a new form of a new kind of human being. The first Adam came, and he broke what was supposed to be the image of God. And the most deepest, fundamental way that he broke it was to grasp after equality of God, to take God out of the picture. But then a better Adam came along. A new human nature, a new creation, a new humanity came. And he, even though he's God, even though he had the ultimate demotion, there could be no greater demotion that's ever been seen and never ever will be seen than Almighty God sitting right there, lying in a manger, crying, being formed in Mary's womb. There can be no other greater, deeper demotion than this. And there he is to be in the essence of a servant, not grasping after rulership, but to be a servant. Now, I've given you point one of this message, the meaning of Christmas. Point two of this message, I entitled my message Christmas, right? Christmas, uh, the upside-down kingdom, and the new humanity. I, I give you point two of this message. I told you that Jesus is a new humanity. Right? Point three, I'm talking to you now about the upside-down kingdom. Do you know the world is absolutely backwards? The world is utterly backwards. All human beings, we want to be like God in his power. And we want to rule and reign and have control of our own life. And we think we're wise enough and good enough to do this. And define for ourselves what's good and evil and choose and have rulership and lordship, be our self-lords and our own self-saviors. And then we want to reign, reign and have wisdom in the world according to our grasping after equality of God. And then we... All, all of us are controlling, trying to grasp after higher and higher glory and higher and higher riches and higher and higher power. Some of you are not interested in, in fame, but some of you guys are. Some of you are not interested in riches, but some of you guys are interested in power. Some of you guys are not interested in power, but you guys are interested in money. But in all kinds of various ways, you, we want to be on the top of the rung. In some little world, you want to have some top of the rung glory. Man grasping after glory, equality with God. This is the way the whole world works. All human beings operate like this. And once this is what's in us, this is how we operate. It's just so normal, right? The Bible says this is straight backwards. It's wrong, right? 
If you want to be like God, you have poisoned the well when you're like this. The very fact that you want to be like this, you're nothing like God. The very fact that you want to be like this, you're not imaging God at all. You're actually imaging hell. Because the devil is exactly the one who wanted to replace God and reign himself. You are imaging Satan, not imaging God. Human beings are exactly more hellish than heavenly. You are more like Satan, not like God, when you grasp after power, when you are like your father Adam, when you are like the old broken humanity. That's the way the world is. What is Christmas? You know what Christmas is? Christmas is the invasion of God to fix the world and turn it the right way. Right now, what we consider normal is the powerful prey upon the weak. Let us become famous. Let us become rich. And just we will despise the poor. We'll be shamed if we're poor. We will always become something by becoming richer and more powerful and then taking God out of the picture. That's the spirit of the whole world. And that's how we normally operate. The Bible says this is just totally backwards and wrong. What did God do? You want to be like me? Go to the bottom and serve and be okay with it. God says, this is who I am. You want to know what the deepest thing about me is? It's not that I'm omniscient, omnipotent, and just have absolute power. That's not the deepest thing about me. The deepest thing about me is I am humble and lowly in heart and I will serve you with all righteousness and purity, with no pride. Adam, the man of pride, the human, broken human nature, utterly corrupted with pride. Jesus, the new Adam, with not an ounce of pride, with absolute pure humility. This is God. This is what Christmas is, to inject the new humanity into the world and heal the world and take the world and place it right side up again. So the kingdom of God, as the Bible puts it, that's why he says, that's why he says things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you want to be great, you'll become the servant of all. You know who, who we're talking about? We're just talking about Jesus. <laughs> we are talking about the new humanity. That's what we're talking about. And Christmas, I mean, I don't even know where else you could see a picture of that. Christmas, you have the baby in a totally backward part of the empire, the Jews. He's not in a mighty city. He's in a no-account little, like, nothing town called Bethlehem. He is not born in a hospital or even in a house. He is born with the animals. And the first... Invited visitors, the invited visitors are the shepherds. They are the low of the low. And there is God. He needs an outhouse. He needs to take breath mints. They didn't have breath mints back then. He has body odor. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He walks with the poor. He is poor. He is nobody. But that nobody is the greatest somebody there ever is. And that's God. And he's saying, I made you to be like this and to be totally okay with it. Not only okay with it, glad to be it. This is God. The deepest image of God is a baby born in a manger to serve. Let me close the message out this way.
The gospel says that he who is highest made himself lowest to be in the essence. There's three essences. The essence of God, the essence of human beings, and the essence of a servant. Do you realize the way the Bible put it? Essence of God, essence of human being. What is put in the middle? The essence of the servant. He who rules the world says, you want to know me? The essence of a servant. All of creation, all of history was set up so that God could have Christmas. Can you believe that? That's what it's about. Christmas is not just one story in one culture, the Western European culture. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. The angel said, what are you doing, God? God said, I'm making creation. They said, okay, what's that for? So you can know me. They're like, we know you. We see that you're glorious and righteous and omnipotent and omniscient. God goes, you don't know me yet. You still don't truly know me. And when God says, now watch. And on Christmas Day, God this. And you know what the angels probably looked at? Their mouth must have probably just dropped. They, I mean, like you can't. they probably couldn't have been more shocked. And this is, we knew you were humble. We knew in like, we know we're around you. We know you're humble, but we didn't know you were like this, right? We didn't know you were like this. And what is Christmas? I have two points that I'll close this message with. Number one, what is Christmas? It is the stage of revealing the depth of God. When you look at that baby and when you hear these songs, you are looking not, you are looking at the essence of God. The depth of God. And nobody knew this until it happened. Not even the angels. And it took human nature. It took human stage. It took creation. All of history. And then God said, watch. And Christmas Day, God showed it to us. So as you think about these songs and hear about Christmas and we give you gifts to each other, I want you to think about this absolutely stupendous, grandiose, unfathomable story told in Philippians chapter 2, the meaning of Christmas. Secondly, I want you to take home something. You know, do you guys wrestle with pride? Wanting to be better than the next person? Wanting to be higher? Wanting to be richer? Or do you wrestle with shame? Do you feel bad that you don't have a nice as a car? Or because you lost your job? Or because your clothes are not as good? you feel shame? that you feel lower, you, you're kind of like on the totem pole of this society, man, I'm pretty low, I'm like, I feel like nothing, right? You realize this? This is, this is in us, we're infected with this. And if you feel bad about this, it's really weird. Do you, you realize that shame in this way is actually a form of pride? It's actually a form of pride. It's really weird, right? Shame is actually affordable. We always think of pride as only the people who are trying to be better than others. But actually when you feel and feel hatred towards yourself because you, you're lesser, than somebody else, that's actually the effect of pride too. And if you are feeling pride and shame on all its corruptions and all its horribleness, right? and you don't think you can ever change and get over this, I want you to ask you to look at Christmas. Look at Jesus. Right? Look, I'm a really prideful guy. Okay, I'm a really prideful guy. I'm growing in humility. I, as a pastor, I'm just going just, to just be nakedly, um, I'll share this with you. Sometimes it drives me nuts that I'm the pastor of a small church 
in a nowhere little place in the EM. I mean, an EM pastor isn't even the senior pastor. The EM pastor is like a junior pastor, right? And oftentimes an EM pastor is not even respected, right? And I feel this. And just like in so many other places, but this is what the, this, you know, when I read this passage, you know what I'm, I'm reminded of? God says, he tells me, you're a pastor, you should just be happy I made you a pastor. Right? In the world, who are considered the greatest pastors? The megachurch pastors. The richest pastors, the most powerful pastors, the most famous pastors. But to Jesus, you know who, who, who the pastors he probably loves? The guy who's pastoring like six people in a mud hut. The guy who's pastoring eight people in a house church. Like this church can't get bigger than 12 people or the government will come in and start killing us. Right? We gotta, if we get bigger than 12 people, we have to divide and start another church and I have to raise up another pastor. Those guys will always be nobodies in this world. But they are like Jesus. And when I read Philippians chapter 2, I, I just tell myself this. I have to remind myself this. You're a wicked and prideful guy. But Jesus is this way. And I want to share this with you. If you have pride issues and shame issues, which I bet you, you all do, right? Sometimes you feel hopeless about this. Like, I can never change. I'm always going to be stuck on this. I'm always going to be like this. I'm always going to need to like, compare myself and always feel like I'm always going to be like this. I want to say, when you feel this way, I want you to just think, let Christmas come to you all year round. Okay? All year round. Let Christmas come to you all year round. And understand that the hope of the gospel is this. Jesus is a new humanity. The right side up humanity. The right side up is like the bottom. It's like the top goes to the bottom and the bottom goes to the top. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus went to the bottom. So God made the bottom exalted to the top. Right? that let Christmas come to you every week and understand that when you believe in Jesus, Jesus forgave you of your sin. He's going to take you to heaven. That's a part of the gospel. But actually, there's more else in the gospel. A new humanity is in Jesus. And that new humanity is injected into you. When you gave your life to Jesus and became born again, you know what was born in you? The second Adam was born in you. The new humanity was born in you. The new humanity, where pride just gets erased away, that cancer will be gone, is born in you. And it's unfurling. Nothing can stop it. And so just let Christmas be on you and trust and believe. The wickedness of your pride and shame and all that corruption is going to be gone. Because Jesus, the second Adam, the new humanity is coming out of you. Trust in that. Believe in that. And don't be discouraged with how you fail or how you fall down or how you don't want to follow Jesus or how you're prideful or all these other problems that we have and all our, the mangledness of our broken humanity. Trust new Jesus, the new humanity is in you. Let's pray. The world needs this heavenly humanity, Lord. The world needs people to be in your image, drained of the cancer of pride and of shame. And I pray that Christmas would wash over us. The good news that God gave himself the deepest emotion and in it 
we found his greatest exaltation. The deepest worthiness of God is the lowliness of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We look up to you, but we can also look down to the weakest and the poorest among us and know that you're not only above us, you're actually even serving below us, washing our feet and taking our wounds and being less than us so that you'll be exalted over us. Thank you for Christmas, Lord. Thank you for this good news. May we sing it every year. My brothers and sisters sing Christmas and hear Christmas songs. I pray they would rejoice. And the new humanity will unfurl out of them. And the world will see a beauty fit for heaven. In Jesus' name.